loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Lynn Castile Harper. Lynn's a minister, chaplain, and essayist. She's the author of On Vanishing, Mortality, Dementia, and What It Means to Disappear, out from Catapult right about now. Her work has appeared in Kenyan Review Online and Catapult Magazine. She's a Barbara Deming Memorial Fund grant recipient and the winner of the 2017 Orison Anthology Award in Nonfiction. She lives in New York City and is currently the Minister of Older Adults at the Riverside Church. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. I'm so excited to be on. Uh, really happy to have you. And I I can't um, go forward without just acknowledging that you, you live in the current epicenter of COVID and work with older adults. So it must be a very intense time for you, I would it, imagine. It's very intense, yes. And I have uh, decamped to Maine uh, for the time being. I'm in a commuter marriage, so... Uh-huh. Uh, which has been, you know, like a source of sorrow, and now <laughs> this sort of respite outside the city, but I'm in touch with all the older adults on a regular basis and my colleagues in the city, so my heart is very much there. Uh, for so sure. for acknowledging that. It's, it's a difficult moment. It is, and a lot of us have, um, who thought we were kind of late middle-aged, uh, I've noticed many of my friends and people in my age group are suddenly realizing that actually we're old oh. <laughs> because of the age guidelines. And, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't feel old uh, just a few months ago. We, we felt sort of late middle-aged, <laughs> but um, you're told there's otherwise. a vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, there's a vulnerability that I was starting to feel a little bit. Uh, honestly, but not like this, mm-hmm. you know, where we're at special risk. So I'm sure they appreciate your good thoughts. But but on to your book, which um, I just have to say was just such a different perspective uh, on Alzheimer's and other types of dementia and resonated so much for me in terms of uh, experiences I had with my wife because towards the end of her life, as a result of her cancer, she was pretty, quote unquote, demented. Uh, And so I really resonated with the humanization that you brought to that subject. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's just been, it's been a labor of love. Um, I think any time a, a group is sort of uh, talked about as if they're disappearing or vanishing or not as fully human as another group, my spiritual antenna goes up. Uh, <laughs> yes. Something's not quite right here. I even think of that in terms of language, like uh, instead of saying um, older people, 
or black people or LGBTQ people mm-hmm. will say the elderly, the blacks, right. which I think right there in the language, there's this sort of blanket over a whole group of people that, that really reduces our awareness of individuality. And oh, I uh, think you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your book, I got to know a lot of individuals you know, who were all different in terms of how dementia looked. That's and right. I, it's like there are people living with dementia, like you say, the people, uh, and not, you know, we often say dementia sufferers, and that kind of makes the people, the individuals, invisible. And also, I think, skews how we who are not suffering <laughs> at the moment, uh, how we relate. Uh, I, I was thinking as I was reading about my grandfather, because you talked so much about your grandfather, um, my grandfather became a much more accessible, nicer person when he started losing his memory. And it changes the relationship, doesn't it? Completely, completely. Uh, My favorite example is that my first wife was black, and he was pretty racist, uh, which is weird because my grandmother had a lot of black friends, but he maintained a sort of difficulty. But he forgot that he was, and he came to visit one time, and he fell in love with her. (laughs) You know, she was a very lovable person. If you didn't have something in the way like that, it it was kind of hard not to love her. Um, But it was it was very funny experience because he'd just forgotten that he didn't like this whole group of people. It's like it just shed that away. Shed Uh, that away. mm Hmm. Wow. Uh, Such a powerful transformation and. Maybe that got at his truer self. I like to think so. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think of my own grandfather, too. You know, growing up, he was always kind of larger than life. This decorated World War II pilot, physician. He, you know, uh, a community leader, always on the go, traveling. And it wasn't really until his final years living with dementia that I felt like I could sit with him and kind of see him on the level as, as a person like me, you know, journeying through life. And I got the impression from your book that, that his larger-than-life self in a way deflected closeness like you kind of had to back up a little. It was very big. <laughs> um, right. right. <laughs> yeah, sort of being an audience member. Um, <laughs> you know, like he was on stage. And um, yeah, that was just kind of how he was. And maybe it's sort of generational too. But um, it, it was hard to have that kind of heart connection. But in those final years, we we could sit by each other and... We didn't have to say much or do much, but just to kind which, of be in the soft softness. <laughs> which meant that you had to be willing and able to sit quietly. 
Uh, a steep learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was I was thinking it so much as I was reading, and I, I'm going to ask you to share an excerpt in a minute so people can kind of hear your written voice. But um, I was thinking so much about how the problem is, by and large, uh, mostly located in the person next to the person. Um, in in our attachment to mentalization, in our um, rationality, in our fast going, you know, uh, productive orientation, all of that, it seems, mm-hmm. is what makes it the the most difficult. Do you think? I think you're right on. It, it kicks up our own insecurities and ask questions about what what gives us value and is it that the other person is constantly validating us <laughs> uh, by by talking to us or um, you know being present in a certain way mm-hmm. or can we really be still together i i'm recalling a uh a moment this was quite a while before my wife died, but she was on an, a medication that um, she needed at that moment, but it wiped out her memory. You know, if she needed to take it and then um, and took it, um, she she kept, continued to interact, but I knew she wouldn't remember it. And um, it was very startling that the check the question that came to my mind is if she doesn't remember is this really happening you know uh, right. that that there was something is this very very is this real yeah um there was something very discomforting at first i got used to it over time but um it, you know are we really relating if she forgets um i think that's such an important question that caregivers ask um, what happens is to the relationship. If and my, yes, recall exactly. And remember and, mm-hmm. Exactly. And what I did pretty quickly determine is absolutely because I was well aware of myself in relationship to her. Um, whether she remembered it, I was, I was carrying it. But uh, another friend of mine whose husband um, died of an, died of dementia uh, said that she missed being tracked, which I thought was a good way to put it. Wow. Uh, maybe you can share that uh, little part of the book about um, someone who was a spouse to someone uh, with Alzheimer's, yeah. um, because I think that's kind of what we're talking about. Great, yeah. So, this is from the first chapter. I heard a woman describe her spouse with dementia as my gone but not gone husband. And her phrase seemed to strike at the heart of dementia's paradoxes, an acute awareness of absence and an equal insistence on presence. Lately, I'm struck by its general relevance as I consider my own gone and not gone self The cells that comprise my body, all of our bodies, routinely break down or slough off, and new ones take their place. Some cells, like neurons, die and are never replaced. 
paradox lives at the heart of my faith, too. The gone and not gone ego, the gone and not gone Jesus. The play of presence and absence infuses all of life, I think, both before and after dementia. Maybe if we can learn to inhabit this tension, this space between opposites, then dementia and the lives it touches can rejoin the spectrum of human experience. Rather than being reduced to tired tropes and burdened by outsized fears, it's sufferers and caregivers made to disappear. Imagine if we received all lives, those with and without dementia, as conglomerations of the ordinary and the peculiar, the fragmented and the whole, the present and the vanishing. Again, that just uh, touches for me this place of reality as it is, uh, which I think about in many other contexts too. You know, how do we accept reality as it is and inhabit it? Um, There was a part of your book where you talked about someone saying uh, someone they loved was dying. I I can't remember the details at this moment, but... um, they said it was a beautiful time, uh, the, the end of that person's life with dementia. And I, I would apply that to the end of my wife's life. The last four months, um, she had a bone degenerating condition and it uh, calcified her blood. And that leads to a dementia-like condition. Uh, I consider that time one of the most love-infused times of my life. Uh, People came to hang out with us, um, you know, took completely incredible care. She could still relate until right at the very end, but she just couldn't remember words and, you know, (laughs) that sort of thing. Um, But it was a very precious, sacred time. And I wonder how many people sort of miss that because they're more aware of what's been lost than what's present. Right. And I think that's, that's our challenge. I think the sort of human challenge is what frame do we want to put around our, our experiences and others? You know, I was just so taken by your description of, of your friends visiting and a time of community toward the end of your wife's life. And so it wasn't necessarily so focused on what abilities or capacities she has, but on the love that infused that time together. Yeah, and I don't know whether we were helped in that um, because it was a relatively short period of time that that was her symptom. Um, In fact, we knew that she was going to die because the condition that was creating that, um, you can't can't live through. Um, They told us she couldn't live past two months, and it was four. She's very, you know, (laughs) that seemed in in character, actually. (laughs) But... uh, But still, we knew we knew it would be short, and I I imagine that was actually helpful to our frame because we were saying goodbye, you know. So we were all very present with that. Um, but still, um, 
I can imagine that that's a possibility even when it's a longer, less definite um, proposition. I think that's the hope, um, you know, that it can be, even if the journey toward the end is longer, that it can be infused with a community that's not afraid to come near, um, that, the, that the losses don't scare people off. <laughs> and I think that's part of what motivated me to write this book is dealing with my own grief around my grandfather and friends with dementia, but reframing that grief as, you know, that I learned so much from people living with dementia. I learned spontaneity. I learned, uh, you know, honesty and, and attaching less value to perfection and defining myself by how well my brain works. <laughs> <laughs> for, for sure and also something about I was trying to get a hold of this as I was I was reading something about um, suspending the rational um, I, I was thinking of this time I, I was mostly hanging out in her room at the end there but uh, at one point people said you have to go get a rest which I didn't really want that much but okay I'll go in the living room for a while <laughs> And, um, you know, just for you. Uh, And Uh so I was in the living room and all of a sudden they came running in and said, we're in trouble. (laughs) And so I ran back in. What kind of trouble? I don't know. You know, she was in bed all the time at that point. Well, she was trying to get up and and she said, she kept saying, the mama train is coming. The mama train is coming. And she was, I knew she had been very close to her mother. So they were kept trying to get her back in bed, get her to lie down, and she was resisting and all this. And I was like, I just, I don't know what made me do this, but I got behind her and I said, okay, let's go. And, and everything relaxed. You know, there's something about joining the other person's reality. And, you know, she told me where we were going and, you know, we had this whole mama train adventure. Uh, <laughs> you know that that was was accidental magic, and you, um, you were able to join in in that moment. Yeah, I think that was years and years of of um, you know joining each other's reality helped that for sure. But I was thinking about it a lot. Um, it's time for a break, so let's come back to that when after our break. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page, and you can find Lynn Castile Harper at l y n n c a s t e e l harper dot com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Lynn Castile-Harper about her book on vanishing. And Lynn, before the break, um, I, I'm a little teary because that that um, experience with my wife just came very vividly back to me as I was telling you about it, um, which I, I always appreciate those moments. And I feel as if you have some of those with your grandfather, with, with Jack, that somehow you're already doing this work with people uh, living with Alzheimer's, but I have this feeling it, um, it made a difference somehow when he was living with that. Absolutely. It's like the professional and the personal kind of dovetailed and the personal, um, not that professional can't be personal, but I think you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. When it comes close in your in your own family and getting to you know see the journey from afar at the time I lived in New Jersey and he was in Missouri and every time I would visit you know I, I never knew kind of what to expect and I remember one time going with my little niece and nephew and they were three and four and watching them play with him and him play with them and I, I, just sitting back and saying this is pure grace and presence they're hitting a balloon with him you know he's he's you know patting them and hugging them and they don't care that he's scrambling words <laughs> <laughs> they probably you know, feel at home. Little kids scramble words all the time. <laughs> They're so accepting. And kids play. They play with language. They, um, And I decided, oh, to be like that, you know, that's aspirational <laughs> for me. Yeah. But, mm. it, it is curious to me. I've thought of this before, how the same things we experience with infants right especially newborns i mean they can't do a darn thing <laughs> you know really and yet we don't we don't question uh, and, their personhood right not at all in fact they're like <laughs> uber humans right we love them more we 
you know, they can't, they can't utter a word, they can't feed themselves, you know, nothing can they do, and yet they are divine. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's somehow right. at the end of life, we don't have that, many of us don't have that same perspective. That same feeling. Yeah, that is a curious, that's a question I often had, you know, we don't, we don't remind young parents, you know, just because they can't use the bathroom or talk, they're still people. <laughs> no, um, that would be well, thought rather odd, wouldn't it? It would be odd, you know, so <laughs> it, it brings to the fore, why, why would we then become so focused on ability and capacity later as defining us as humans. How much do you think it has to do with fear of death? I mean, in a baby, that's a, that's a condition that's going to change. They're going to learn. They're going to grow. Mm-hmm. Most children will. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be, you know, themselves, kind of. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. But at, at the end of life, that isn't what's going to happen, right? Uh, I wonder how much that has to do with it. I think you're right. I think we imagine young children kind of becoming more present uh, in the world and kind of becoming bigger and, and more themselves, whereas on the other end of life, we sort of imagine that disappearance um, and mortality and death. And so I think so much of dealing with dementia is dealing with our own fears of death and dying and loss. Could you share that part of the book about your grandfather since we're talking about him? Sure. Let me let me find it here. Okay. For all of his losses in old age, I've come to feel that my grandfather, Jack as Jack, did not vanish. He persisted, a complex conglomeration of the past and his new present. Jack would mock sing into a salt shaker when good music came on in the nursing home dining room. What else but an affinity for life was behind the enjoyment of playing instruments, traveling the world, perfecting omelets, and singing into a salt shaker? Stooping over his wife's coffin deep in dementia, Jack said, I don't want to join you yet, babe. What else but a will to survive was behind piloting a cargo plane across the treacherous Burmese hump, scraping his way through medical school playing gigs and bars at night, and declaring at my grandmother's graveside his desire to live. The essences behind his previous life endeavors seemed intact in Jack until the end, in subtle shades, often known only to those who spent time with him, while the activities that once embodied them had fallen away. The mystics might say what is left is a truer, purer self, the dissolving of all doing, the stripping away of the via activa, makes straight the path for the naked, beloved self to emerge, the deconstruction of ego can facilitate a new freedom of being. It reminds me of, of um, someone who comes up a lot in these shows, Stephen Levine, my wife, and I spent a lot of time with him while she was ill. And he would say, 
When you strip everything away, what's left is the ah. Uh. That was his his way of expressing that sense of being, beingness. Uh, and, of course, you know, great mystics sit a long time to generate that experience. And it seems to me maybe when the brain is not working the same way, it might be a little more accessible. I don't know. I'd like to hope so if I'm ever... Or as you say, when, <laughs> when I'm demented. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that, when I have dementia. <laughs> yeah, when I have dementia. I love that, that, that you um, expressed it that way, that we all maybe could try that on. Yeah, I, you know, uh, people have varying levels of comfort with that. Uh, and I always say it's not expressing some sort of desire to have a disease. But it's really trying to kind of break down that psychological barrier and to to have a kind of, uh, I don't know, lessen the fear a bit. That's what I find when I say it. Well, also, I'm thinking about, um, I'm thinking about my mother in particular, who her worst fear was losing her memory at the end of her life. Um, she really had a, a profound fear of it. And both of her parents did, in fact. Um, but I don't think the fear originated with that. I think she always had a deep fear of, of not being able to think, basically. Um, and it was, he, she didn't die of dementia, but um, her, her memory was definitely affected at the end. Uh, she was hallucinating and, you know, couldn't remember things and all that, but she wasn't bothered by it at that point, uh, which I, which really stood out to me that, you know, she'd say things like, I thought this would be terrible. Really? It's not so bad. You know, things like that. Well, <laughs> she was able to name it. Yeah. She was able to name was- it. And I'm sure she meant physically as well, but I, I really have to think she also meant mentally. And, you know, she, she'd say, move that plant, there'd be no plant. And we'd be very confused for a minute. And then we'd just move the plant. Oh, it looks so much better over there. You know, (laughs) she was having a good time. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It made peace. Yeah. Made peace, you know. Yeah, this is, this is, this is what we're doing now. (laughs) Wow. What a great example you have. Aren't I fortunate? For sure. (laughs) (laughs) I can remember. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go right ahead. Yeah, I can remember talking on the phone or a video chat with um, a dementia activist, so someone with a diagnosis who's, you know, an activist for his rights and the rights of others with dementia. And before we got off the line, he said, tell them, he knew I was writing a book, he said, tell them we're not suffering. And mm-hmm. that always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. You know, he, and he's not saying there's no suffering or there's no loss. But I think the dominant narrative is people are are suffering, uh, it's intractable, it's unrelenting. And, uh, you know, he said what, what he suffers from more than anything is the way people treat him. Mm, absolutely. I, I just realized in... Or... 
Right. I just realized the irony that what mostly the people in my therapy office are struggling with is their minds. You know, is the thoughts they have about themselves or about the world. It's thinking that troubles us. Um, but we, but we think that if, if we can't think as well, somehow we'll suffer more. That's how attached we are, I guess. But I, I've never thought of that irony quite, um, that brains are great, but they also do lead to suffering the ways that we That's think. That's a great point. Yeah. I think about a woman on the dementia unit who I think I call her in the book, Bernice, and when I first started working, she wasn't um, in at the on the dementia floor, and she had severe mental illness that was just almost debilitating to her. And and then I watched over the years as she let some of it go, and even talked about having a blank slate. Hmm. And for her, that wasn't a source of angst, but of liberation. And certainly that's not everyone's story, but kind of to your point, thinking is sometimes the source of our suffering. Um, and the ability to imagine the worst case scenario. and For sure. For sure. Yeah, I think there's, there's something to that. <laughs> but I do understand why in this culture, um, the idea of not being able to, to think has so many buttons attached to it um, to think in the way that we, you know, prefer. Uh, it, it does is, make sense to me. Yeah. No, I, 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 and I never want people to think, oh, she's minimizing <laughs> that aspect. I mean, as a minister and writer, I, I love words. I love thinking. Um, I love being able to put things in speech and in writing. But I'm trying to let go of that as the sole source of my identity or my essential self. And as a woman, I think it's hard, too, because I, I want to have a measure of control, mm. uh, you know, in a, in a sexist society. Like, I want to be able to push back, and I do that <laughs> a lot of times with my mind, you know. <laughs> sure. Um. So I think there's different stakes for different different people groups too. That that leads to something I really wanted to make sure that we talk about, which is um, the, what you're calling the golden hour, where light and dark meet, and how defined we are by um, condemning the dark. Um, and you connected it with, of course, race and cultural assumptions um, that I feel are so present in our world right now, um, that that duality not being accepted. Uh, I, I wonder if you could fill that out a bit for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I- I, I was noticing language around dementia that had to do with darkness, that people descend into darkness, uh, their mind is dimming, 
and the idea that darkness and dimming automatically in our culture are associated with badness, uh, with evil, with menace, with something that's frightening. And so it got me thinking about, as I'm trying to reframe dementia and get rid of some of these metaphors that aren't helpful, why, why is darkness equated with those things? And how can I sort of rehab my view of dementia at the same time rehab my view of, of darkness, mm-hmm. uh, which has deep connections, obviously, to, to racism? And so I see the two sort of in tandem um, that the dimming of the mind, darkness, doesn't have to equate with something dreaded or fearful. That it, it, it can be beautiful and life-giving and doesn't have to be eradicated. It really stood out to me, the part of your book where you were talking about how we, the, the effects of uh, having ways to avoid darkness, like light bulbs. And, you know, the, uh, I, I, I've thought about what it must have been like, you know, what the pace of life must have been like before we had things like electricity. I've thought about that. But the idea that it's actually interrupting our relationship to darkness uh, really stood out to me. That has, uh, you know, there's a lot less light in the place where I live right now because of uh, corona. And so you can see the stars um, in a way that I, I live in a big city. Usually you can't. And um, it's beautiful. Um, you know, it's, it's a different experience for it to be pretty quiet, less cars, and um, to be able to see what's available in the dark is different. It is, and it sort of reminds us that our having limits here in the, this pandemic moment, you know, we're in many ways so limited in what we can do there's there's there can be beauty in that and not that the suffering is worth it i'm not saying that but the fact you can see your stars hear the birds in the morning <laughs> it uh, kind of brings us uh, down yeah. to earth a little <laughs> i think my motto is if if bad things are going to happen we may as well make some use of them <laughs> your show right (laughs) absolutely that's the bottom line that's it bad things don't happen so we can use them but they happen so let's use them (laughs) so let's use them yeah yeah, the transformations that can come from loss that can happen and and they're kind of neck and neck right now uh for for the people i work with you know there's the terrible and there's the beautiful and they're kind of running neck and neck for most people that's right. I mean, we're seeing that tremendous community spirit, uh, the way people, you know, even at my own church, reaching out, how can we help the older adults? What can we do? Absolutely. Uh, oh, I really want to talk more fully about that, and it's time for our break. So sure. let's talk about community and what we can do when we get back. Great. Um, 
listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com, my website, or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Lynn Castile Harper and her book, go to L-Y-N-N-C-A-S-T-E-E-L-H-A-R-P-E-R.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Lynn Castile Harper, the author of On Vanishing. A beautiful book about uh, how we relate to dementia and how we might relate to it. And before the break, Lynn, we were um, beginning to talk about the the, um, the importance of community. Uh, what brought it up was COVID, but um, circling back to the end time uh, with my wife, that experience would have been so radically different without community support. And uh, I know for myself, in this time where we're all at home, it's been, I I don't really like social distancing as a phrase at all. I I like physical distancing much better because, boy, at least I have really needed people. And I think that's true of any life challenge that it's, you you have a little more access to the blessings of it if you have support that's not social distancing we're we're a coast apart but you know we're connecting and something maybe our previous generations couldn't have imagined this the way we can do this in fact i i was reflecting on what it must have been like um with the misnamed Spanish flu in uh, 1918, 
that that must have actually cut people off socially in a way that we don't have to be uh, because we can Zoom or, you know, there, we have access to so many different ways to um, stay connected. Um, but I wonder, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about the part of your book where you're talking about the um, Bible study you did with people living with dementia and I had to imagine that part of the beauty of that was um, people being together in an environment where there wasn't judgment. Um, do, do you think that was a big piece of how that worked for people? I, it certainly worked that way for me. <laughs> I, I, I felt radically accepted and it was always at the end of my week. I didn't work on Fridays, so it was always Thursday afternoon when we would gather on the dementia unit and have a Bible study loosely defined, uh, kind of morphed into a spirituality group. And I think there was just this basis of we're, we're going to be together just how we are and let the story, whatever it is for the day, provide some springboard and, and let it take us where it will. And so there was a sense of we're all in the round in this together. And it, it opens up incredible pathways. And sometimes it was a lot of silence, sometimes tears, and sometimes storytelling. But it was, it, it was, one of the most profound experiences for me as a minister to be in a group with people who were said to have sort of disappeared and here they were very present with and to each other. It, it makes me think of how much uh, our culture defines people in terms of their personalities and their capacities. And that when um, something happens that changes those two things, it's a huge loss, but something else potentially takes its place a little bit. Yes? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. I think it was always a little bit easier for me as a chaplain than, say, a family member who knew someone for decades and was carrying that memory of who they once were, and I could sort of meet them right in that moment mm-hmm. and not judge them by what they were able to once do, but kind of who they were becoming. And I always saw this ascendancy of, of affection and compassion. And I can remember a son on the unit is you know, now my dad hugs and kisses me. He would have never done this mm. when I was younger. And you know, there's something that kind of like opened up this portal that can be life, life-giving. But there's also the grief of grieving what is no more and like you For say, sure. personality and capacity. That is something to grieve. It's not a small 
No. It's, it's no, no small thing. <laughs> I, I mean, one doesn't eliminate the other, does it? Mm-mm. Yeah, it's both joy and sorrow. To the point that you can come at people from a different angle because you didn't know them before. Um, could you share about Carol, that uh, the the person who thought you were someone else, I guess we could say. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Would you like me to read that section or? That'd be great. Okay. Yeah. Um, Carol, who was in her final days living on the dementia unit. You came to see me. Carol's spry greeting surprised me as I stepped into her room and sat in the chair next to her bed. She was sitting up, smiling. I was not used to such effervescence in these times. Carol was on hospice, and all signs indicated that her death was near. Oh, it is just so good to see you, Terry. It has been so long, she exclaimed, her eyes alight, wide and clear, peering. I thought you'd never come. She gazed tenderly into my face, as if I were not the chaplain she had just met in recent weeks, as if she and I shared a long and wondrous history together. Carol recognized me as Terry, likely a long-dead relative or friend, which is likely why it had been so long. We have no idea the great many meanings of our presence, the great many manifestations we bring, We simply show up, loose and floating, within a field, mostly not of our own making. Sometimes we are recognized, but not as whom we take ourselves to be. We can resist and dismiss this misrecognition as unfounded projection, or we can embrace it as somehow revealing aspects of ourselves, however obscure to ourselves. Terry was a stranger to me, but not to Carol. In this instance, my presence sparked gladness. I have also sparked sadness, anger, fear. I can still hear the end-stage cancer patient who cried out when I entered his room, not you, no, I don't want you. I contain joy, fear, anger, sadness. So why would I not have the power to elicit these emotions in others? I try to take neither welcome nor rejection, exceptionally personally or impersonally. Hello, Carol. I'm glad to see you, too, I said. We held hands. We did not say much. She seemed content to look upon Terry's face, my face. She drifted to sleep and died a few days later. That just brings up for me the profound importance of not correcting people in that in, in the circumstance that they are losing their memories or having those kinds of experiences. Imagine how different that moment would have been if you had said, oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not Terry, I'm Lynn. <laughs> you know, if you had insisted on the literal truth, you would have lost something and she sure would have lost something. Yes? Right, right. And what would have been the purpose? And in some ways, I... I it's instead of saying, well, she's confused, she doesn't know who I am, it's sort of learning to embrace that 
maybe I am kind of like Terry (laughs) in a way. I don't know. So we'll embrace this. Uh, I can remember learning this the hard way. I, I corrected a person with dementia who was very upset about wanting to go home one day. And I knelt down and I said to her, Veronica, this is your home. And Cheryl, she slapped me. <laughs> oh, no. Well, that was over the top. <laughs> and I said, you know, it didn't hurt, but, I, you know, and I don't recommend violence, but it really has stuck with me that, you know, this corrective, um, that wasn't the response. I, I was not, I've, I've missed home before. I've moved. I've missed home places didn't feel like home. So instead of kind of connecting from my own emotional experience, I thought I would be, um, you know, nice and corrective. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because it brings up geography. I, I just watched the other day, a a movie called a secret love. Uh, it's about two women who, um, were together since the 1940s. And um, they didn't come out until, I don't know, 2013 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was about their aging and their coming out and their having a wedding and all of those types of things, but, which, which was impactful. But what impacted me the most was their niece trying to get them to move. I, I found it excruciating because she didn't have any awareness what a big deal it was to give up their geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've encountered that so much, um, you know, working with people trying to navigate their parents' declines and, you know, um, that somehow geography doesn't matter um, when it when it really does. <laughs> You know, it's not that you have to give it up sometimes, but it really matters. It matters tremendously. And, you know, I, I don't think our society set up well to help people remain in their homes and their communities and neighborhoods. You know, so maybe. On and especially side, and especially with dementia, don't you think? Um, because, oh, I think so. Because it outstrips a family's capacity because that person needs the help with the everyday things regardless and it falls to it can't fall to just so few people i remember reading an article in the times years ago the best insurance policy in the u.s is having a daughter (laughs) you know and that's not fair (laughs) no it's not i you know i think about uh my my grandmother her her mother needed care and moved in with them. And my grandmother uh, did some piano teaching, but she basically was a homemaker. And that they could float that, right? But that is so few people's circumstance in the world we have today. It's um, extraordinarily so it's, difficult. Yeah. And uh, let's not skip the difficult part. This is the difficult part. But that sense of geography just really stuck out to me uh, as a um, that 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 could affect people even if they don't quote unquote have a memory of place 
they have a feeling of place. A strong um, imprint. Uh, a strong our, imprint, for sure. And I think our spirituality wow. is shaped so much by our geography, too. Yes, and then there's leaving people's churches and their communities and all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. And I hope people will go look for the book. I found it just really beautiful and and fired my fired my thoughts and feelings. So thanks for that. You can find Lynn Castile Harper at lynncastileharper.com. Next week, I'll have Bernie Siegel and his grandson, Charlie Siegel. Bernie's the renowned author of Love, Medicine, and Miracles. His grandson is the author of the novel Conversations with an Angel. Together, they've written a book of poetry, When You Realize How Perfect Everything Is. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.